Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. Season four, Annie, hello, welcome. Oh God, back already. I feel like we were just saying, and it's a wrap, <laughs> like two minutes ago. But, you know, big bang to start with, mm. newsflash. Before we get on to our guest today, newsflash, newsflash. <laughs> Our, one of our most recent uh, uh, honorees in the mm. Australian Honours System, Annie Madden AO. How does that feel? I mean, it's just so amazing. Like, you know, obviously that's the first question people give. Oh, how does it feel? And it's, you know, my, one of my reactions is it's kind of quite surreal in a way. Like, it's just such a once-in-a-lifetime mm. kind of thing, yeah. obviously, that... Um, and really... Oh, no, you can get upgraded. Yeah, that's true. So I, I believe I can become yeah. a companion of yes, the order that's or something. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there's so something to for. People are already asking me whether they need to bow or curtsy <laughs> when they meet me. I go, no, no more than usual, you know. <laughs> but, but seriously, it's a really big deal um, for the people who awarded these and, and particularly for someone in your position yeah, as yeah. An, a person out uh, yeah. who uses drugs, as yeah. an advocate for yeah. people who uses drugs. And in particular, as someone who's drug dependent, you know, mm. like being on methadone, all that sort of stuff, like that's, you know, it is, un- it's very unusual, it's a real privilege. And I think, you know, that's the, the thing that um, I really value most about it is that I think, as you and I have discussed, Carla, you know, that there is clearly space mm. in something like the Australian Honours System yeah. for people who use drugs, people with a history of both, you know, drug yeah. and other al- alcohol and other drug use, and that there is space in there to recognise work and, um, you know, mm. hard yards in that space mm. is, is really nice and uh, unexpected, very unexpected. And, look, the other thing I would say about it too is, you know, what I've reflected on is not only does someone need to nominate you, thank you so much, Carla, because, you know, that is just amazing that you did that, but that also um, then a whole lot of other people get on board in the party. and support mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. I guess, you know, it's, it's that and then that it doesn't stop there. It then goes to this committee of people yep. of whom I don't know and, yep. you know, have assessed all of this. And just when you sit and think about those layers, it really – it sounds really cliché, but it is actually so humbling, you know, like that – I now understand why people say that so much when they get an award of this kind because it really does make you think, you mm. know, wow. Mm. Um, and I think they really nailed it with the citations. Yeah. I was really pleased with that. And do you have that off the top of your head? Well, um, it's to the effect of, you know, for uh, recognition for... Distinguished service. Distinguished service to um, working with people, disadvantaged people and in policy and human rights, which, you know, I really... The human rights angle was Mm. um, what Mm. was really nice to have in there and, you know, feels good. Well, just so awesome, just so awesome (laughs) to be able to... um, Uh, you know, celebrate uh, terrific contributions. Yeah. So before thank we get you. all teary... Still, still sinking in, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. So you. welcome to Season 4 and we have mm. fabulous guest today, Jenny Valentish. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me on. And um, we've got you down the line from a from a country area. Are you nbn there or are we, <laughs> are we doing on dial-up for you? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I, I do believe it's Wi-Fi, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if we if we have any wobbles, we'll we'll um, I might ask you to repeat a few things if we feel like we're going to miss yeah. anything. So, 
Welcome. It's so good to have you because um, people might be familiar with your work as a, a journalist, but uh, your 2017 book, Woman of Substances, really caught our attention. And um, it, for being so different to others that cover issues of drug use and drug dependence from a variety of angles, including your own experience. And so we wanted to, to get you in here and uh, put you through the ringer of our whole long list of questions. But really to sort of illuminate, you know, wh where this book came from mm -hmm. and how you did it and, uh, and what the reception has been. Because, you know, in the, in the year and a bit since you've published, mm. what's happened. But we, we wanted to start with saying, you know, you put a lot of yourself in the book. Very, um, you talk a yeah. lot about your personal experiences and aspects of your life. That might have been difficult to put on the paper on page on the page. So, you know, what what was your decisions and thinking around this, and what's your opinion of, of doing that now? Yeah, it has been really full on because even though I'm a journalist, I've never ever written about myself at all. I'm, right. I'm actually a very private person, although it feels mm. a bit difficult trying to convince other people of that now. Um, in my defence, nice to get set in the nineties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't even write opinion columns, you know, I just, right. um, I always profiled other people. So it has been really full on, but at the same time, it felt like the right hill to die on. That's an evocative was, metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like. <laughs> I did, when I was writing the book, I, I also thought, I know I'll write a document of kind of deflection techniques for when it comes to the media form. And that document ended up being 20 pages long. Right. Um, so essentially useless. And that was how much I was concerned about, you know, sharing this kind of personal information and desperately thinking how I could then dodge it. Because if you write a book, then that book is in context and it's got a certain audience that you're aiming for. Mm -hmm. As soon as it, you know, becomes processed by the media, the audience is much wider. It's not mm -hmm. the intended audience. Uh, the media focuses on, on things that you might think are odd and they're out of context. Mm. Yeah, so, right. um, for instance, I mean, one of the first major newspaper stories that came out, um, they reprinted the most graphic sentence <laughs> of the entire book oh. out of about 10,000 sentences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and their story focused on that. And yeah. because it was one of the first stories, that meant from that point on, any journalist or radio producer who wanted to interview me just did a quick Google, saw that story, oh, right. and also focused on this really graphic, quite difficult stuff. So yeah. as a result, the, the wealth of media information out there about the book, I feel, is really sort of inaccurate and mm, it's really skewed. Uh, yeah. really gory. Mm, and it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's difficult because the book's supposed to be a resource and it's also blackly funny I would say yeah I'd agree <laughs> I spent some nice days on the couch over summer with rereading your book so mm. I enjoyed it a lot oh, thank you mm. so Jenny you know just kind of to delve a little bit further into that because you know I mean one of the things that we've discussed is that of course you could have written the book you know without bringing your personal perspective into it. You could have written using sort of, you know, research literature and policies in relation to these issues that, that are available. But you did make that decision to include your own story. You know, what, what difference did you think it was going to make to kind of speak from your own perspective? You know, why did you decide eventually to go that path? I, I didn't actually decide. That was decided for me. So um, yeah, I could have written an entirely 
you know, research-based mm. book, but it would have been an academic publisher, and I'm not an academic anyway, mm. I'm a journalist. So when I went to the agent about 10 years ago with the idea of doing a book about women in addiction, not about me, mm. uh, it was quickly shouted down. Um, and particularly because memoir is huge, like female memoir is huge, is a huge mm. genre in publishing. So they were really adamant that there had to be that personal element. Yeah. So I compromised by making it a mixture of research and memoir. But I think really um, some of the early publishers I talked to would have wanted it to be 100% memoir. So right. yeah. believe it or not, this was a big pushback. Oh, okay. That's really interesting, you know, mm-hmm. they sort of sucked into the machinery of publishing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, actually it doesn't make um, – uh, it, it's not a surprise when you think about academic publishing as it is. It is another machine and you mm. have to bend yourself to its machina- machinations and, and putting so what, Yeah, and I, I get it. I mean, so few people buy books now compared to, you know, the figures of the past that mm. um, it does have to be as commercial as possible and you do have to have that personal angle, which is mm. perfect for the media. You know, mm. if you ever do a pitch to a publisher, they're going to be thinking, what kind of media stories are going to arise mm. from this? That's mm. the first thing they'll be thinking about. Mm. So um, can I ask, because as someone as well who has, you know, talked about, you know, my personal story in the public and in the media and, you know, that can have sort of interesting outcomes in your life and, and you know, you can get both positive and negative responses to that and everything in between. What sort of, you know, response have you had to including your personal um, stories in the book and, and, you know, what do you think about having done that now? Is what, what, How do you reflect on it? If we put aside the media um, mm. interest in trauma and stuff, which was really, really stressful, mm. look at other people's responses. I didn't have any negative responses at all, um, mm-hmm. even for my own family. Yeah. Um, did they know ahead of time, you know? That, yeah. yeah. Look, I did consider mm. just sneaking out without them seeing <laughs> I thought, no. So I actually involved them as much as possible. Um, right. Well, mum was kind of the gatekeeper, really. And then she showed all the chapters with family and to dads as well. And I showed my brother some. Oh. And mum got really kind of involved. Like, well, when I say involved, I gave her loads of transcribing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was better to bring her in and be really upfront about, oh, there's going to be some really difficult stuff in here. What do you think? Do you want to change anything? And they didn't change anything. Mm. Um, uh, and just sort of, you know, go hell for leather and publish and be damned. Mm. So mm. I'm really glad I did that. Uh, but other responses from um, readers, mainly women, have been mm. a constant stream, um, really long, thoughtful messages, really long, thoughtful reviews on mm, sites like right. Goodreads as well. Excellent. Uh, and it's really hit its target market. And I know that it's – sorry, market's a horrible word – target mm. audience. Yeah. And I know that um, it's, it's had a, an important impact. So whenever I feel like, oh, God, there's this whole wealth of humiliating material, <laughs> I just have to think past that. Yeah. Did what yeah. you set out to do. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, and and what about professionally? Um, same positive response professionally. Um, professionally, uh, well, so I'm a journalist. I'm not in the AOD sector, mm. but the response from the AOD sector has been amazing, actually. Right. Um, I've had people. Uh, I know that people are sort of sharing it with clients, sharing mm. it with each other. Yeah. Um, hopefully, buying lots of copies rather than photocopying. <laughs> Um, so sort of using it so almost as a therapeutic tool, you know, a tool to engage yeah. with people. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, which is the ultimate compliment, really, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you you mentioned trauma just before, mm. and trauma features a lot in your book. And again, you talk about some of your own experiences. You rake through the literature. You talk to experts. So there's a lot covered. But what what do you think the alcohol and other drug field still mm. needs to learn about trauma and how to deal with it in in mm. delivering services and care? It's funny because I I had never used the word trauma before writing this book. Honestly, mm. unless it was like mm. blunt force trauma. Um, because I'm English, you know, and it sounds kind of very melodramatic to me. <laughs> we, we, we would say something like a bit of bother. Or <laughs> um, yeah. When I was writing the book, I did a word count and I, I typed it about 70 times or something. Right. Yeah. And then I kind of became trauma girl in the media. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of drug fields, drugs field, um, personally, I when I quit drinking and went to a, uh, an outpatient service, um, they avoided the kind of personal trauma angle. Um, and that was fine because I was already seeing a psychologist and I think the AOD service was really happy about that because right. I don't think they really wanted to go there. Mm. Um, so it meant that they could focus on, you know, CBT and motivational interviewing mm. and sort of building you up rather mm. than stripping you down. Um, I think it's a really common scenario for AOD workers that, it is possibly something you'd rather avoid. You might not be trained. You might be afraid of opening up a can of worms. There might be, there probably will be some steps backwards. The person who you're, the clients might, um, uh, if you start opening up this past history for them, they might really fall back on their coping mechanism, which is, of course, drugs. Mm. Yeah. So um, it could be a sort of two ste- step forward, two steps back. That sort of re-traumatizing type. Mm idea yeah definitely mm. Mm. but i think it would be so common for aod workers with female clients in particular to have people coming in with this kind of what freud called repetition compulsion behavior of reenacting um cycles of abuse or mm. you know needing needing attention because they were rejected as children and it's so intertwined with the drug use mm. um but if you were just to treat the drug use um you're leaving all that stuff, and it's just going to—it's just going to crop up again. Uh, so it's, it's really vital that trauma is treated, and if, if it can't be treated within uh, within the AOD service, then there definitely needs to be uh, strong ties to another service mm. that does provide it, mm. which isn't ideal because then your, your client's going to be bouncing between services, and they, mm. you know, it's mm. bound to be a pretty difficult time for them anyway. Mm. I mean, I think you so do a, a, a really nice job of. Um, drawing the grey out of things which sometimes might be presented as black and white. And, um, you know, you, you talk that not everybody who uses drugs mm. needs treatment mm. and not everybody who uses drugs um, in an independent way has experienced trauma, but there are many people who have. And um, it seems an, an odd thing to me that the the prevalence of trauma, or if we want to call it, in in the client group, is so high that it isn't part of more part mm. of a core competency. Yeah, trauma informed care is really, you know, mm. not mm. something that it features in the AOD sector as much as you might think it should, mm. for sure. Mm. Yeah, there's yeah. not much consensus about the right approach either. And then you've got, you know, you've got your private rehabs, which are very 12 step based, which tends to be about, well, you've got a disease. So, mm. You know, do they then address the underlying causes and traumas? Maybe some do, but probably mm. a lot don't. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just 
it's just like the wild west out there, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's also an issue sort of not just sort of for the specialist AOD sector either. You know, I think this whole issue of trauma and its relationship to people's drug use and taking a trauma-informed care approach is is a big issue for general practice as well and not one that is, yeah. um, you know, because general practice is, is very much where people often have their first contact with, mm. you know, drug and alcohol, uh, with uh, medical or health services um, who have drug and alcohol issues. But um, it's it's something that has been sort of silenced within the sector for a long time. So it is it is good to have it discussed more openly. So um, that said, it's yeah. moving forward, I think. I mean, I think mm. people, people are very literate in using phrases like PTSD, complex mm. trauma mm. now. Mm. Um, and if I think back to my sort of peak drug-taking period, you know, 90s, early 2000s, I, I never heard words like that. I never mm. heard phrases like that. So mm. at least yeah, we have right. a language for it now. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, a developing a literacy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, um, Jenny, you know, you've obviously done a large amount of research to, to, to put this book together. Um, can we ask you, you know, is there something that, you know, you didn't know about drugs or drug use before you started this process that, you know, you learned during putting this, something that surprised you or took you by surprise? Yeah, there's a chapter called Body of Evidence, which is um, about how, how drug use affects the body. And... Um, I really didn't realise the extent to which drugs react differently to women's bodies. So, um, depending on where you are in your cycle, uh, you will be more attracted to drugs or they have more of an effect on you. Um, But not only that, but women who, say, let's say, drink heavily, they're prone to things in a much shorter time frame than men. So, uh, high blood pressure, nerve damage, weakening of the heart muscle, brain damage. Um, So, yeah, you're... Oh, and, and various cancers, more cancers than men are prone to as well. Right. But um, there's also um, the reaction that women can have to drugs like MDMA, which you know you might take once in a blue moon perhaps, but mm. um, let me see if I can pronounce this right. Um, hyponatremia, is that right? Sounds mm. good. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good? Okay, well that's, that's low sodium in the blood. Right, um, okay. And, and low sodium in the blood makes you more thirsty, so you might uh-huh. over hydrate and develop right. water intoxication which can be fatal mm. um, but there was a study that looked at kids using ecstasy uh, at a dance party in Amsterdam and they then tested the plasma sodium concentration of these kids right. um, and 3% of the guys developed mild uh, hyponatremia as opposed to 25% of the girls right. so that's the sort of thing you don't yeah. read about that I reckon no. would be really handy information yeah. from newspapers yeah. during the whole I mean, I really, really enjoyed those aspects of the book where you also pointed out um, gaps in knowledge or or perhaps Mm. even a misogyny in research Mm. practice where women are excluded or not included in studies where so this type of knowledge is um, lesser or less frequent or isn't of the same standard of research that... um, work focused on on male participants might be was that a surprise yeah. for you as well uh yeah but, but although no not once i thought about it um, <laughs> yeah okay um, we hear you. the reason being really is that fewer women seek professional help than men like go to rehab for instance because there are more barriers to yeah. women seeking treatment like yeah. they might have kids that's right um yeah. 
so so the population of rehabs are, are largely male so then it's kind of lazily assumed that more men take drugs than women mm. um like like way more men mm. which isn't true um so we then have the system of uh, research being aimed at the male experience um, mm. not just for that reason but also because it's it's really tricky uh using women in studies because you have to take into consideration where they are on the menstrual cycle mm. that kind of thing mm. so yeah. it's, it's just a, a pain for researchers to do that mm. plus if you're building on existing studies and they used pretty much men only then yours probably will too mm. so it's kind of perpetuates yes. the cycle of um we're treating just, addiction as a male experience we're just such an inconvenience you know? <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. to include us. And we, we know, Jenny, you wanted to make mention or have a thought about um, what's happened since the book mm. and your perspectives on, on um, alcohol and other drug treatment since that time, because things have changed for you. Yeah. So um, I gave up alcohol for eight years, but I kept occasional drug use, which in my mind was like oh, minimisation. Mm-hmm. Because I thought I'm less likely to succumb to pressure and have a big blowout if I mm. tell myself I'm allowed to do certain things. Mm. Um, so that worked really well. And then around the five-year mark of not drinking, I started to think, well, I probably could drink again. I've done a lot of work. Um, I've addressed a lot of kind of psychological things. But um, I just sort of kept it going regardless for a bit. And then when I finished the book, it kind of felt like an end of an era. So... Mm-hmm. I started having some drinks with friends, and it, it was very anxiety-inducing, I won't lie, because, you know, mm. you've had it kind of drilled into you that, well, I went to AA for a year and a half, and they mm. drill it into you that if you drink again, you know, you could end up, I think there's three choices, um, dead, um, in, a, in a mental institution, or... In jail? Mm. In jail, that's it, jail. Have yeah. days. <laughs> so, you know, you're waiting for Uplifting. <laughs> Yeah. So where where are we speaking to you from at the moment? Is it beyond the grave or? Yeah, I've only got another five minutes. And then they're going to that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's um, that's really tough and restrictive, right? So, uh, mm. like you say, it, it was ingrained in you. Um, wh- what have you come to now in understanding out the role of alcohol in your life now? It's been about a year and a half now without any incidents. Um, and sometimes I go to smart recovery meetings, um, full disclaimer, I'm on their board, mm-hmm. um, to keep an eye on the moderating. Um, but generally, it's just been, it hasn't been an issue because I don't use alcohol in the same way that I used to. Um, it's about the relationship. Particularly for things like social anxiety, which you can mm. just fall into the trap of using it automatically all the time. I just avoid that. Um, but I'm really happy to talk about the fact that I do drink again because it's most sort of memoirs end in um, 12-step programs mm. and the language changes dramatically and mm-hmm. it's like, and now I am this complete person, yes. which yeah, I think is pretty optimistic. Mm. Mm. And it also kind of, you know, using language like alcoholic and addicts just mm. encourages a permanent mindset and this idea of being in a, a special club, which mm. then... I think can mean that you're not looking at the underlying causes that really need addressing mm. or otherwise some other behaviour is just going to crop up instead of drink and drug use. Mm. So I'm really happy to, to talk about the fact that we have this, currently we have this very black and white mm. way of looking at addiction and I think that needs to be challenged. 
And Jenny, can I just ask just quickly for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, you mentioned smart recovery. Mm, good point. Can you explain yeah, a bit yeah. more about that? Just briefly, yeah. Yeah, smart recovery uh, started life in the US uh, and it's now spread across the world. And in Australia, we've just hit the 300 meetings mark. So it's 300 mm. across Australia. And it's, uh, each, each meeting is free. It's 90 minutes long. It's weekly. And uh, you don't share your kind of war stories. There's no higher power. There's no emphasis on, you know, self-flagellation and redemption. It's purely about useful tools. So you can go for any kind of addictive behavior. Um, Internet, smoking, sex, you name it. And it it just works with, you have a facilitator who works with motivational interviewing and CBT and those kind of things to give you goals and ways of... um, checking your behaviour, and, um, and you don't have to be abstinent, I don't So it has a harm reduction goal. sort of angle to it, presumably? Yeah, mm. so, I mean, you know, the idea of harm reduction or harm, harm minimisation mm. is that mm. abstinence is at one end of the spectrum, so mm. you can choose that if you want. Mm. Um, but certainly you are the kind of the boss of this programme. You, you get mm. to use it how you choose. Mm. Mm. Oh. Set your own goals and mm. the yeah. and pick up the tools that are useful for you now and which might be different next mm. year or so on. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Nice. So what's what's next on your agenda? What's what are we, what are you doing in twenty nineteen? Uh, I'm working on another book with a psychologist called Matthew Berry, who's also the chair of the addiction conference on the Gold Coast. Oh every yeah. May. Yeah. Um, so we're co-writing. I'm not going to do a spoiler, but it's um, oh, just a teaser. It's not a spoiler. Just a teaser. <laughs> a teaser. Yeah, a teaser. Yeah. It's basically based on his model of working, and I really like it. So I was really happy to join forces. Oh, nice. So that'll be out in 2019. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit longer. No, You're doing it in 2019. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was thinking of stocking oh, filler, like getting early. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be continuing to write lots of articles on um, drug and alcohol issues and lots on psychedelics as well. That's a real area mm-hmm. of interest to me. Oh, Thanks. very good. Nice. Well, we're, we're oh, so yeah. thrilled that we yeah. could have you as our first guest for season four this year. Um, thanks so much, yeah. Jenny. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, thank you. good luck with the new book. And, you know, um, yeah, fab- The Woman of Substances, great book. And, Really, um, I think, as you've touched on in the interview, you know, just having more discussion, particularly around issues for women yeah. with drug dependency issues is, you know, always a good thing, um, mm. a topic that's totally been undercooked. So, um, yeah, really nice to speak with you. And um, Yeah, you too. Thanks. Yeah. We'll put a link up to the book on yeah, our page will. and people can go and have a look. And thank you again. Thanks so much. No worries. And I guess, Carla, we'll um, sign out and we'll see everyone next, next time. time on Speakeasy. For more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, head to httpcsrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.